All right, Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be. So if you want to take out your Bibles, uh, your idle phones, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can also grab one in the seat pockets in front of you. As you guys make your way that direction to Acts chapter 12, the first verse is actually going to read, it's going to start like this, now about that time. And so that's a good lead-in for an intro, because we must ask, what is the time that we're going to be looking at today in chapter 12? And the about that time that it's referring to is what was taking place in chapters 10 and 11. And what we saw as we journeyed through those sections of Scripture is that the Apostle Peter was taking uh, the gospel at the command of the Lord to the Gentiles, and to a particular Gentile family, a man named Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion, so he was in charge of a hundred Roman troops. He was a man of some definite means. And as Peter uh, preaches and gives them a gospel message, what we saw is that the Holy Spirit actually descended down upon the Gentiles, the same way that he did for the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2, which was amazing and also caused uh, quite the stir because for the Jews, they had these preconceived notions about the Gentiles that even though they, uh, they were seeing them better than maybe their Jewish counterparts, they still looked at the Gentiles as a little bit less than, that surely God wouldn't give them the Holy Spirit the same way he gave uh, us the Holy Spirit. And so they called Peter into question to ask them exactly what took place at Cornelius' house. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the, that questioning. And what we found is last week at the end, after they'd heard everything that happened there that day, uh, the only thing they could do was glorify God. They realized it was truly a work and a move of the Holy Spirit. And so they simply glorified God with what he was doing inside the gym as the word was spreading throughout all of the land. Exactly, by the way, as Jesus said it would. It was going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He told them that in chapter 1. They just didn't read ahead to know that he was going to fulfill his promise. Now, what we see is as the church begins to grow is that it really takes off and takes a foothold in this area of Antioch. Many Gentiles in this uh, region, which is in modern-day Turkey now, it began to really grow. And so they send Barnabas up to Antioch, about 300 miles from Jerusalem, to check out what is going on with the Gentiles. And Barnabas, looking at what was taking place, was amazed, but he also knew somebody else was way more equipped than what he was to handle this influx of Gentiles, and he remembered Saul of Tarsus, this Roman-born, and yet he was a Jewish Orthodox believer until he was converted to Christianity on the road to Damascus. So here's a guy that has a Greek background. He's also a Jew by birth. He is going to understand this relationship between Jew and Gentile, and we would uh, know him later as the Apostle Paul, the writer of 13 of our 27 books in the New Testament. And so we see uh, Barnabas and Saul are now leading the church there in Antioch, and as they grow as a church, a man named Agabus comes forth, and he prophesies about a famine that's going to hit the land of Judea. And so hearing about this prophecy and this famine that's going to be hitting uh, Judea, Saul and Barnabas take up an offering. They head back down to Jerusalem 300 miles away. And now we arrive at about that time. And so let's begin in chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And so we begin today by looking at Herod the king. Now this may cause some of you, especially in this Christmas season, to pause and go, what about this Herod that's being mentioned? Is this the same 
Herod that was looking to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem because he was fearful of this new king he had heard about? And the answer is uh, not the same guy. That Herod is actually a title, not a first name. And that Herod uh, of uh, Jesus' birth there in Bethlehem was actually Herod the Great. He was a great architect, and he was also the grandfather to this Herod, Herod Agrippa. And so the Herods all have something in common other than just their title and their grandfather. Uh, they were also all of Idumean descent. And what that means is they were sons of Esau, not of Jacob. And so you've got Israel, who is Jacob, and you've got Esau, his twin brother. And so you, you can see the sibling rivalry that takes place between these two groups. Now what we also read about Herod Agrippa is that he, like his grandfather, Herod the Great, they have a particular fascination with Jewish culture. They are, they are fascinated by the Jews. In fact, they would even like to have uh, some of the approval of the Jews. He is seeking, when you look through his life, seeking the acceptance of his brethren that would never accept him. Because, for Herod Agrippa, his mother was actually Jewish, while his father was a descendant of Esau. And so they looked at him as less than, as a half-breed. We're not going to accept you until we get to verse 2 of our reading today. And then, speaking of Herod, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. And now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And so, how does Herod actually get a claim with the Jews? It turns out, uh, lots of people all over the globe can't agree on much of anything except just like these uh, Jews and Gentiles, they don't like Jesus. They could agree on that. We do not like what's taking place. And so as Herod Agrippa orders for the, uh, the uh, death, the execution of James, he is beheaded. The Jews get all excited about this. Now who is uh, this James? But it's the son of Zebedee. He is the first apostle that is martyred in our New Testament. So James, the, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, these two guys called the sons of thunder, uh, this older brother was actually killed at the hand of Herod Agrippa. Now interestingly enough, while James was the first apostle to be martyred, his brother John is actually the only apostle not to be killed for his faith, not to be martyred. And so it's kind of fascinating to see God work in John's life. Now, that's not because uh, the Romans didn't try to kill John. In fact, a Caesar Nero took John and actually uh, dipped him alive in a cauldron of boiling oil, which is why John would become the first ever friar in the church. Come on. It's uh, about as good as it's going to get today, so you might as well laugh now. All right. So John, actually, uh, Nero did attempt to kill him by dipping him in boiling oil alive, only he survived to Nero's demise, and he sent him off to the island of Patmos where John wrote the book of Revelation for us. Now, all that, back to our story, what we find is as uh, Agrippa is being applauded for the death of James, he gets excited, he's finally accepted by his Jewish brethren that he's always wanted to be, and so what better way to get them even more excited than grab a hold of Peter? I mean, if they get that excited for the death of James, how much more are they going to love it if I can get my hands on the guy, the apostle Peter? And so we see he is now his attention to him. He has him arrested during the feast of Passover. That's what he means by the days of unleavened bread. And then in verse 4, 
And so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. And so what we see is he now hands uh, Peter over to four squads of Roman soldiers. A squad was essentially four Roman soldiers together, but there were four of them because he was intending to watch over to keep Peter under lock and key for a a full 24-hour shift. So he assigns four soldiers just for the very duty of keeping a handle on the apostle Peter. It seems like a lot of overkill. Every day he would be chained to two of them, and the other two remaining would be outside the door of the jail cell. He was not going to lose this guy. And you may wonder, why was he under such maximum security treatment? Well, remember what happened in Acts chapter 5, right? Peter and the other apostles, they just walked right out of a Roman prison. And so he knew this guy was a slippery character. He's not going to have this happen again, but he couldn't kill him during Passover Why? Because it's illegal to kill during the Passover. And so he had to wait until after the season was done. So he has Peter there in custody. And in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And so here's Peter in a lockdown, maximum security prison. And what can the church do? What power do they have? I mean, the Romans have, have all the advantage Herod has got the Romans' ear. He's their vassal, their governor that's been appointed. There's nothing they can do except pray. And I want to pause right here to tell you that oftentimes we think we have no power in this world. We have no power whatsoever against what the world is trying to do to us in our situation, and yet what we can do as a group of people is pray. And prayer is so exceedingly powerful. We tend to dismiss it, and think that there's no value, we're just sitting around jabbering away, and yet what you find over and over again in life and in Scripture is there is tremendous power in corporate prayer. There is a reason why we gather here every morning at 9.15 on Sundays to pray for these services. I hate to tell you, most of you weren't here the first service that we prayed at 9.15. If you don't believe in the power of prayer, just look around. This place is, is full of folks that are here because of the power of prayer, to intercede on the behalf of others. And so what we see is there's tremendous power that happens and takes place. In fact, what James says in James chapter 4, verse 2, at the end of that, he says uh, that you do not have because you do not ask. And yet you ask and you do not receive because you ask and miss. And so we oftentimes don't have things. We don't have deliverance in areas of our life because we don't even bother to ask. We won't even stop and take the time to go, Lord, would you please intercede? Would you please step in? And moving on to James 5, verse 16, just to tie this together, James goes on to say, confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If you have ever seen or been a part of effective and fervent prayer of righteous people availing, you know there's nothing like it. It is truly amazing. Now you may say, I'm not righteous enough. Well, remember what we looked at last week. It's that all who confess their sins and are willing to lay them down, God says, I'm willing to cleanse you by the blood of Jesus. You you go from unrighteous to righteous through that transaction, through just saying, Lord, I can't do this on my own, I believe and trust in you. 
And so what we find is that oftentimes we dismiss prayer, but there's tremendous power when it comes to corporate prayer. Now then, back to our text, verse 6. And when Herod was about out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound in two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. And so what we see is, here's Peter. He's literally chained between two Roman guards. These are trained warriors. And if that wasn't enough, there's two more guards outside the door. And so what's Peter doing? He's taking a nap, of course. I mean, why not sleep? He's probably got his head propped up against one of those soldiers just drooling right there on his shoulder. I mean, that's the position he's in. And so for the third time in Scripture, we find Peter specifically called out for sleeping. He's sleeping, but this time I would submit to you far different than the previous two times. In Luke chapter 9, verse 32, in this section, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. We looked at this a little bit last week. But here, Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain, and they're going to get to see the transfigured Jesus. He's going to be there in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah. And yet Jesus didn't tell them that when they were headed up the mountain. He just said, you three, come along with me. And so where do we find Peter specifically in Luke chapter 9? But he's taking a nap. (laughs) While Jesus is getting ready to be transfigured, transformed before their very eyes, uh, Pete's sleeping. Why? Out of apathy. He didn't think God was going to work. He didn't think that Jesus was up to anything in his life at that moment, and so he was asleep. He was apathetic. Now then later on, In Scripture, we see in Matthew 26, Jesus again asked Peter, James, and John to go along with him and pray, only this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night that Jesus was going to be arrested, and he said, would you guys stay awake and pray with me? Would you just pray as as he cries out to the Father, great drops of blood coming out of him because he knows the agony he's going to have to go through on the cross in just a few hours. And so he asked Peter, would you please just pray? And yet... This time in disobedience, he sleeps. Not even willing to stay awake when the Lord asked him to, would you please? He sleeps. And now, though, as we see Peter, he's now in prison. He's got guards on both sides. He's chained to them. And yet, what is he doing? He's sleeping again, but I would submit to you in a far different position. Because he now has the Holy Spirit within him. He now has the Holy Spirit upon him. And he is, instead of sleeping in disobedience or in apathy, he is now completely at peace. What Paul writes about in Philippians 4, 7, the peace that passes all understanding. There is no reason why Peter should be sleeping soundly. He's getting ready to get executed in the morning, yet uh, like a little baby, he's just sound asleep. Now, you might remember another time where sleeping was mentioned in the Bible, uh, that of uh, Jesus going across the Galilee with his crew. He's there with the apostles. They're going across the Sea of Galilee, and you know what he was doing? Taking a nap. (laughs) He was sleeping because he had the same kind of peace that Peter had. And yet Peter, being all freaked out that Jesus is sleeping in the middle of a storm, he's shaking, going, Lord, don't you know we're going to die here? Don't you even care? And Jesus responds and says, oh, you of little faith. Where's your faith at in this spot? I'm right here. I'm on the boat, guys. Nothing bad could happen when I'm on the boat. And now you fast forward all these years later. Fifteen years have passed, and Peter knows for a fact now, Jesus is on the boat. 
He is right here with me. He is able to sleep like what the master was able to sleep in perfect peace because he knows God's got this. No matter what's going to happen, whatever the outcome is going to be, this is in the hands of my father. Now then, verse 7. And now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And then the angel said to him, Gird off and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put your garment, put on your garment and follow me. And so he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done was by that what was done by the angel was for real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And so here's Peter. He is now so sound asleep in this spot where nobody would think you should sleep this soundly. He is so sound asleep that the angel has to actually uh, smack him, essentially. The old King James says the angel smote him, like he whacked him upside the head. You can just imagine. This is like trying to wake your wife up off the couch, right? Honey. 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 Hello. 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 Time to get up. That's what the angel's essentially having to do. Whispering to Peter, Pete, Pete, there's a bright light shining in your cell. Then finally he just whacks him upside the head. Pete, time to go. Gird up your, your cloth. What Jesus or what God said in the Old Testament to Job was gird yourself like a man. Have you ever wondered what that means? By the way, I give you some pictures just to explain this. In Peter's day, they would wear these long tunics, these long robes. And so if they wanted to get any work done, I wouldn't know what it's like to try to work in a dress. Maybe some of you do. But apparently it was very difficult to work in these robes. And so when the Lord would say himself up, they would actually take these robes and tie them up around their waist. Why? So they would be able to move. They could have action. They could get to places quickly. And so what the angel says is, gird yourself. Strap on your sandals. Get the Air Jerusalems on. It's time to run, baby. We got to get going. And the question is, that at least I had, is if I stay asleep, if I stay asleep, if I'm Peter and I stay in that spot, how is anybody going to hear about Jesus? I wonder how many times in our Christian faith, remember Peter's fully secure. He's got a peace that passes understanding. He knows exactly where he's headed. If he's executed, he's going to be with the Lord. And yet if he stays there, how is anybody going to hear about Jesus? And so the angel says, you've got to get up and you've got to go. Going back to what James mentions in chapter 1, verse 22. James writes, be, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes, it, he observes himself then goes away and forgets what he looks like in the mirror. What kind of man? He forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's your scriptures, the law of liberty, and continues, and is not, for, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so as we look at these scriptures and we're taught through the word of God, what James is saying is if you just sit there and you only receive, you're not a doer. So you wonder why you're not blessed. You're not out doing anything. The point is, there's times where we've got to gird ourselves and get up and get to work. The Lord has things for us to do. Now continuing in the text, 
and verse 10. And when they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them as of its own accord. The gate literally just opened up as they walked up to it. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he finally shook the cobwebs out, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. They were looking to kill me. I know the Lord's behind this very thing where I'm at right now. But the question is, what happens if Peter just rolls over and decides to sleep in? <laughs> yeah. You know what, Lord? I'm good. I'm good today. I, I, don't, I don't think today is necessarily my day. He was perfectly comfortable there in the prison cell. And I think that oftentimes this is where the Western Christian is stuck. We have really got it good in this life. We can stay in this comfortable spot that we're in. I don't have to get out. I don't have to get dirty. I don't have to get my hands dirty. I can stay right here where I'm at. And yet, for many, you're actually staying trapped. I'm staying trapped in a prison that God has already freed me from. He has so much more on the outside, and yet I become so comfortable in these prison walls that I don't feel like getting out today, Lord. I'm good. And so he's freed us oftentimes. We want to smack us upside the head. It's time to go from this prison, and yet we, we don't lift our eyes up to see it. Or instead we question ourselves. What if I go out there and I just make a mess of things? What if I, I, I'm, I know who I am inside? I am just going to muddle this thing up, or my life is already too messed up. What if I just simply make a mess when I get outside these walls? I go to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14. This is one of my favorites. I've got it highlighted in my Bible. And Solomon writes, Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. <laughs> Here's the reality. If we keep our stables clean, we need not put any oxen in there whatsoever because we all know what oxen do when they're in the stable, right? And I think oftentimes because we are afraid of, of getting a little ox poop on our shoes. Right? I don't want to get my shoes dirty. I want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to get involved in that situation because I might get ox poop on myself. Or what if I've made a mess of my own stall? And, and the reality is, and we need to grasp this, is God isn't looking for clean stalls. No work is getting done in a clean stall. He's looking for stalls that need mucked and raked and cleaned out. Because work is happening at the hand of the ox in that stall. Continuing on in verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where, they, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, they said to her you are beside yourself. And, he, and she kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, it is. 
And so here we are. Peter's now escaped. He's like the original fugitive. I mean, he's essentially, he is Harrison Ford, and Tommy Lee Jones is trying to track this guy down. He's escaped from maximum security prison, and he's now there at the location most likely of the upper room. Mary was more than likely the host that actually hosted Jesus and the whole crew there. That's why Peter was so familiar with this place. This is a spot where the early church was gathering there for the purpose of praying for Peter, by the way. And so he's there like a fugitive. He's knocking on the door, and this young lady, Rhoda, her name means Rose. I'm sure she's sweet, but she didn't bother to open the door. That doesn't seem all that sweet to me. She leaves Peter standing at the door, knocking, because she's so excited she hears his voice. And then when she comes to tell them, they say, eh, it's probably just his angel. I mean, really? Can you imagine how many times they're seeing angels in the New Testament now? They're apparently seeing angels all the time. I don't know if he looked a little bit like uh, Greg Allman or not, but at least that's what came to mind. Look, this is no angel. Okay, no Allman Brothers fans. The point is, here's the answer to their prayer at the door. They're praying for Peter to be released, for God to work in this situation, and he's standing at the front door, and all they have to do is go and answer it. You wonder how many times I pray for something, and I pray for something, and it's right there at the door, and yet I never even bother to go answer it. Eh, it's probably just an angel. <laughs> it's amazing. So continuing on in verse 16. And now Peter continued knocking, And when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silence, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go and tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. And so they're all excited. They're cheering for Peter. He's like, kind of a wanted man here. Quiet it down. He proceeds to tell them about what's going on and says, go let James know. Now, a little side note, this isn't James that was beheaded at the beginning of our chapter, but instead James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's the writer of our book of James. He had become the leader of the early church. And so what we find is here's this whole crew. They're they're praying. They've got uh, enough faith to pray, and yet not enough faith to believe that God could actually act on their prayers. And so when we see... Uh, Jesus speaking to this bunch. Now you understand in Matthew 17 when he says, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you could literally tell that mountain to throw itself into the sea and it would happen. All he's looking for, and I take a lot of solace in this, by the way, that all God is looking for is mustard-sized faith. Oftentimes I find I'm praying for a thing. If I'm being really honest, I don't have probably enough faith to even think he's going to do it. And yet I mutter it anyway. I want to encourage you, if that's you, just exercise that. Get the words out there. Speak that into existence. Because what I see in this story is these folks are praying for a thing to happen, and they didn't even have the faith to believe that it could. And yet he was right there at their door. Secondly, I wanted to mention that what Peter says in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter. 1 verse 3, with reference to pray, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Even when I'm not enough, even when I don't have enough faith 
to bring anything of value to the Lord, what Peter says is, here's the reality. The eyes of the Lord are constantly on you. Do you realize that? Everywhere you go as his righteous, his eye is always upon you. Lord, you've left me here. You've left me in this prison. No, he hasn't. And, And even every prayer, even when we swear, Lord, you're not hearing my prayer. You're not hearing my cry. I want to be released. What Peter's writing here is that his ears are open to your prayers. Praise the Lord. And anyone who seeks to do evil against you, he is against them. And so often, this is what happens, that the things that we see with our eyes aren't really how they appear in the heavenly scene. What God sees is something far different that's taking place. And so as we've looked at this, what we see is Herod is in complete and total control. He is in power. He is behind this situation. He's got it going on. And Peter's just a pawn. He's getting moved around, shuffled around, thrown in prison. Things look horrible for Peter. They look fantastic for King Herod. And that's why we're going to continue to read. In verse 18. And then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded they should be put to death. And he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and stayed there. And so word gets back to Herod that next day. You can imagine the buzz in the maximum security prison when their prize inmate has broken free. And so word gets back to Herod. He's furious. And he sends out people all over Israel to look for Peter. They can't find him. And so what he does is he sentences the Roman soldiers to die the same death that Peter was supposed to die. That's how they handled it in Roman times. Whatever the sentence was against that one, if you lost the prisoner... You suffer the same fate. And so this is what happens at the hand of Herod. And then he leaves from that area, from Jerusalem, and goes down to Caesarea. This is speaking of Caesarea Maritime. It's actually still ancient ruins there along the Mediterranean Sea, a beautiful spot that was built by his grandfather, Herod the Great. Had great auditoriums and horse tracks. You can still go see the ruins. It's it's really amazing. And so he goes down to Caesarea Maritime, which is towards the area of Tyre and Sidon, or modern-day Lebanon. And now, verse 20, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide, or his chief of staff, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Remember what was happening in Judea. A famine was prophesied about. There wasn't enough food in the land. And so for the people of Tyre and Sidon, they depended heavily on Israel for their food source. But Herod off and he just cuts them off. And so they go and they appeal to his chief of staff, please let us go and be before Caesar or be before uh, Herod Agrippa. And so he goes there, they go there to him. And then in verse uh, 20, and now Herod was Oh, excuse me, I already read verse 20. They go to him for food. Verse 21, So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. 
And so here are the people of Tyre inside, and they know the best way to get to Herod is to suck up a little bit. He needs a little bit of flattery. And so we're told in verse 21, he has arrayed himself in his royal apparel. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about the, the robes of Herod Agrippa, that he actually had them made with silver thread. And so you can imagine how he would have looked there, appearing before them with the Mediterranean Sea there and the reflection off of that, and then the sun reflecting off of his silver apparel. I am certain uh, Elton John would have been jealous. He would have looked better than Benny, Benny and the Jets, right? There's, there he is in his royal apparel. He begins to speak, and they cry out the voice of a God, not a man. Man, he's loving it now. I am the man. Now then verse 23. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> That's quite the story, right? So here he is. He, everything looks like it's going great for Herod. I mean, he's in his silver apparel. He's looking great. People are praising him like he's a god. And then the Lord strikes him right there in that moment. And he's eaten by worms, and he dies. Now, you think about this story, and you go, wow, that's really gross. <laughs> like, uh, surely God isn't looking to just gross us out. And the reality is he's not looking to just be gross with this story, uh, but instead, very matter-of-fact, to help us to understand that when we divert the glory of God off of him and onto ourselves, uh, we are going to get all eaten up. That's the reality. That when we allow the glory of God that should be owed to him and, and he's deserving of to go to us instead, it literally eats us up inside. Now, why is that? Is it because God's an egomaniac? That's the way I thought for the longest time. Why does God need all this praise and glory and adulation and singing all the time to him? And the reality is it's not because he's an egomaniac. It's not at all. God doesn't need you to glorify him. You need him so you have someone to glorify that's not you because you weren't built to handle it. You weren't built to withstand that because we are flawed and faulty characters. And the reality is we were, we were made to worship. We were made to be in community and worship God. But when we do not worship him, we worship who is truly our favorite, and that is us. I love me some me, right? That's who we are ultimately going to put on the throne when it's not God on the throne and we cannot handle it. And so as I was thinking about that this week, the question came up and the title of the message out of that is what's eating you? What, what thing is in your life that's, that's eating you up right now? A few examples to throw out there. Uh, first of all, the is it the worm of anxiety? That when we begin to look at our lives and go, man, look at what all I have accomplished. I mean, I've got the job, I've got the family, I've got the house, the cars, I've got it all going on. The problem when I look at that and I realize all that I have done and I have accomplished is that if I have obtained it, I must maintain it. When it becomes all about whatever I have accumulated, I then have to keep up with it. So what happens when the job changes? What happens when there's a change at our corporation and, and I, I might not have this position? How am I going to afford that 
house payment. And, and before long, what happens is we get ridden with the worm of anxiety. Where I can't even function because I'm so anxious that everything that I've worked my tail off to build, it's going to be taken away. So what James says in James chapter 1, verse 17, is that all good gifts come down from above from the Father of lights. When instead of glorifying myself and all that I've accomplished, when I can throw my hands up in the air and go, Lord, everything that I have is because you've given it to me. Every single blessing, every single opportunity, every one that you have put in my life, every, every good thing is from you. Guess what? You don't have to maintain it anymore because it's God's. It's all his. And so what Job says in Job chapter 1 is that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said that after he lost everything. <laughs> after he lost it all, he had that much down. That blessed be the name of the Lord. And so when we give him thanks for these things, when we just go, Lord, it's all yours. I am so thankful to be your servant it's like dewormer for us <laughs> it, it begins to cure the worm of anxiety the second worm i want to mention is the worm of perversity do you understand that a perversion is essentially an alternate version that god has his version for our lives but when it gets twisted that's what it means to be perverted when things get twisted it leads us into an alternate version, a different version, one that he did not intend for us to have. And the reality with where we're at as a Christian church and really as an American society is we've allowed so much perversion. A recent Barna study says that 8 out of 10 men who claim to regularly attend church are also struggling with pornography. That even in the church itself, we are struggling mightily with perversion. And ladies, before you get too creeped out, the same study said a six out of ten women also struggle. And so the truth is we have been plagued with this perversion. What we are ultimately doing is we are accepting an alternate version. What we're telling God is what you've given me is not good enough. This version that you've laid out, this isn't good enough, so I'm going to create my own version. I'm going to create my own reality. And what Paul says in chapter 1, I'll pick up in verse 18, is this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because they may be known to God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Meaning look around nature, you can see God everywhere you turn even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, meaning us, are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of God, for, of the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature 
rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the issue with accepting a, a perversion, an alternative version over and over again, what we're essentially doing is saying, God, I'm going to worship myself and creation over you. And notice with me the real issue for this group that Paul writes to these Romans in verse 21. They did not glorify God, nor were they thankful. That all this death and all this destruction and all this perversity is brought about through a lack of thankfulness. Your version isn't good enough, Lord. I need a perversion. All that can be cured through thankfulness. Now, thirdly, the worm of negativity. Do you find yourself in a spot where you're grumpy, unsatisfied, cynical? There's no good thing that could possibly happen. As I was researching a little bit, I came across in the early 1900s an area of Coffee County, Alabama, in particular the town of Enterprise, Alabama in the early 1900s. They were known for their cotton exporting. They exported millions and millions of dollars of cotton every single year until in the early 1900s they were infested with boll weevils. These little pesky, grain-eating, cotton-eating critters that came in and literally destroyed all of their cash crop. It left them obliterated. Almost 100% of their cotton crop wiped out because of the boll weevil. About that time, a group of believers in Enterprise, Alabama got together in a little Baptist church. And rather than looking only negatively at what God was up to, he destroyed their very livelihood they could have looked at, you know? God, you, you allowed this to happen. Instead, they gathered together in this little church and they said, Lord, we want to thank you for the bull weevil. We want to thank you for what you've allowed to take place in our life. And we trust you that something better is on the horizon. That you have something so much better for us in mind. Now, just shortly after that, a young man that was at the Tuskegee Institute by the name of George Washington Carver had been doing a tremendous amount of research on their soil types in Coffee County and realized they had the perfect soil to raise peanuts. That they could raise peanuts with this soil and it was resistant to the boll weevil. Just about a year later, they had raised so many peanuts in Enterprise, Alabama, and Coffee County, they had exported $5 million worth of peanuts. Carver had come up with all different ways that peanuts can be used, over 100 different ways that the peanut is a fantastic plant, and even beginning to make peanut butter, right? Thank God for peanut butter. But do you realize if they would have stayed in a place of being cynical and grumpy and grouchy that what is God up to in my life? Why has he allowed all these things to take place? He's destroyed my very livelihood. They would have missed out on peanut butter, right? That, that what God has in mind for us so often is he's looking to make peanut butter out of our mess, but we spend our days being grumpy and unsatisfied and ticked off and shaking our fists. Why, God, would you let this happen? What Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, is that godliness with contentment is great 
gain, Timothy. If you truly want to have great gain in your life, it's not on the stock market portfolio you possess. It's not in your 401k. It is godliness with contentment. Lord, thank you for what you've done in our life. And for these people, strangely enough, they even erected a monument to the bull weevil. I mean, of all things, that's an actual picture from Enterprise, Alabama. So thankful for what he had actually done through that seemingly otherwise disaster. Now then in verse 24, for he was, a, a, excuse me, verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had fulfilled their ministry, they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And so what we looked at is otherwise Herod was on the throne and all was good. Uh, the reality was he was actually doomed. And here the very gospel that he wanted to stamp out and snuff out was intended to multiply. You see, so many times what we see is doom and destruction. What God sees is perfect fulfillment in our lives. That's what was taking place for Paul and Barnabas. Their mission was fulfilled. I don't know how many of you so desire fulfillment. And so as we head towards a communion here today, I'm going to ask you guys here in a minute to just uh, bow your heads. Jake and Michaela are going to come up. You're going to have the opportunity to just self-reflect. What kind of worms have I let infest my life? What, what thing have I let in that is actually eating me up that I need to just flatly give over to the Lord Jesus? And so, Father God, we thank you and we praise you for the bull weevils in our life. We thank you for times where seemingly you've wiped out complete prosperity, and yet you had something so much better in mind. Thank you, Lord, for peanut butter. And Father, I think that's precisely what you want to do in our lives lots of times. Lord, as we get ready to just look at our lives, to just take this opportunity to reflect on what you're up to, Help us to be able to identify these things that have caused us destruction inside. Whether it's anxiety because we try to hang on too long. Or it's perversity because we weren't satisfied with the version you gave us. Or if it's just negativity. We just are downright mad, Lord. Help us to be able to give these things over and instead be thankful. Lord, we lift this time of prayer up to you. We lift this communion up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can come forward if you like. I've heard about this baby boy who's come to earth to bring us joy and i just want to sing this song to you it goes like this the fourth the fifth the minor fall the major lift with every breath i'm singing hallelujah 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 Ah. Uh-huh.
Apostle Paul was attempting to address the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. They had managed to get communion all wrong for a long time. They, they had made it all about food and drink and quit caring for one another and stopped being thankful altogether about what God had done in their lives. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, as Paul's trying to reinstitute, to, to, to reemphasize the Lord's Supper, he said, 
this, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks, he took it and said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this as often, excuse me, do this in remembrance of me. And so Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your body which was broken on our behalf. Lord, if, if anyone could have had the spirit of negativity, it would have been you. I mean, you, you were sent here for a bunch of people that didn't listen and didn't pay attention and wanted to just do our own thing, Lord, and yet you did not give up. You were eternally thankful to the Father for the opportunity to save us. Lord, thank you for your body which was broken on our behalf. And we praise you in Jesus' name. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, Father, we thank you for the cup which represents your blood. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the way you poured yourself out on our behalf. That because you became sin for us, we actually get to wear your robes of righteousness. What an unbelievable gift, Lord. One that we cannot deserve, we do not have any ability to repay, and yet we can gladly receive it just through thanksgiving and communion with you. Father, please examine our hearts. Look inwardly to us. Help us to become more and more like you each and every day. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're told in the New Testament was after they had enjoyed that last supper together, they all stood and they sang a hymn. We don't sing a lot of hymns, so we're all going to sing a beautiful song together. Please stand. Are you past point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Cause shame's done all it's stealing. Are you desperate for some healing? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let 
wipe away the tears from broken dreams and wasted years until the past to disappear. Oh, let me tell you about my Jesus and all the wrong turns that you were going on to you good. Who can work it all for your good? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Oh, he makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sin that he can save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love strong and his grace is free. And the good news is that I know that he can do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let my Jesus change your life. church said <laughs> perfect spot to end all right thank you guys so much for coming uh, again please stick around for lunch today we'd love to be able to dine with you guys we got plenty of food uh, downstairs homemade chicken and noodles also we're going to get an opportunity after uh, lunch today to be and pray over riley and ashley and baby gwendolyn so we're excited to get a hangout with you guys you're all invited uh, i'll be hanging around if any of you have any prayer requests at all, I'm happy and honored to get to pray uh, for you. Uh, may you go on your way, Lord Jesus. Please bless this crew. Father, help us to have a heart of thankfulness and one uh, that rids us of the impurities that the world so easily tries to trap us in. Uh, Lord Jesus, bless these people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Guys, have a great week.